if you're a writer, you should be on Twitter. Not all writers are going to be great at Twitter. If you can kind of think in short, pithy sound bites, hopefully funny or, you know, whatever, that, that will serve you very well in building an audience. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Other Life. I am Justin Murphy. I just wanted to let you know that I write a free newsletter to thousands of people every week. And honestly, it's really good. It's where I publish my best work, I share events that you can come to and much more. We have an insane private community around the newsletter, and I honestly think it's the coolest newsletter in the world. And it's free. Go check it out. Just go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. And also, when you subscribe, I'm going to send you a folder of PDFs that contain all of my personal highlights from a bunch of my favorite books that I've read over the years. So you'll get a million insights after just a few minutes of browsing these PDFs, really. They're really special to me, and I just figured I'd share them with you all. So. That's otherlife.co, otherlife.co. All right, what's up, everybody? I'm Justin Murphy. This is Other Life. Today, we're going to be talking about John Kennedy Toole and his now famous novel, A Confederacy of Dunces. Toole was, whether you know this or not, I'm not sure. I don't know how well known this is, but he was actually a minor professor at a community college. And his novel was never really accepted by mainstream publishers in his lifetime. Uh, of course, you know, it would become very influential and celebrated, but that was actually after he ended his life at a relatively young age, in part from his frustration with institutional publishers. Uh, but the novel, the work of art was original in certain ways, and it's now quite appreciated. So we're going to try to learn a little bit more about John Kennedy Toole's life and the context of publishing at that time, because there are some interesting parallels actually between his situation and the situation faced today by many, you know, aspiring writers and independent writers in our spheres. And so we're going to try to tease out some lessons for independent writers today and just learn a thing or two about John Kennedy Toole's life and how he brought this work of art into being. Uh, even though it wasn't really understood or appreciated by many publishers at that time. So I'm here today with Dan Baltic. Dan is an independent writer who I actually first connected with several years ago. I think it was at least two years ago. And since then, at that time, he was just kind of starting out, just kind of decided he wanted to build an independent platform and, and a career as, as an independent writer. And he's really gone and done that, actually. He's managed to launch at least the beginning of a pretty successful independent writing career as a novelist, primarily. But he also hosts the podcast uh, called New Write um, with his co-host, Matt. And he learned a lot from Tool, uh, both the novel, but also Tool's life was, was a major inspiration for Dan. And so I thought I'd bring Dan on to do a kind of deep dive on John Kennedy Tool and the context around uh, Confederacy of Dunces to try to tease out some lessons. Then we'll talk a little bit more about Dan's uh, writing career and how he's built his project from scratch. When I met him, he had pretty much no following. He had nothing to stand on. And now, and now a couple of years later, you know, it's not like he has a million followers, but he has a passionate audience and he's growing consistently. And he has published a novel that um, has had a lot of positive re reviews from a lot of kind of independent uh, in the, in the kind of independent writing community on, on the internet. So uh, he's definitely learned a thing or two, and I, I, I'm pretty impressed with what he's managed to build from scratch. Uh, I, I now regularly see him appear on my on my Twitter timeline with some funny viral tweet or whatever. So he, he's kind of cracked the code, and he's off to a great start. So I think there's a lot to learn about how he did what he did that my audience and other independent writers out there in my orbit will be interested to learn from. So that's my introduction. Dan, welcome to the Other Life Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. It's uh, really, it's an honor, and uh, frankly, it's, uh, it's a, a little special to me because 
Um, as, as you mentioned, I, you know, started out uh, on, I joined, well, I, I had already written my novel, Nutcranker, and I joined Indie Thinkers because I, you know, had been trying to find an outlet for it, trying to find a publisher, a, actually trying to find a literary agent, could not do in part to the subject matter and also just, you know, frankly, the types of stories that, you know, I, you know, and people like me would write are not really in vogue these days. So, um, yeah, I, I found some community on Indie Thinkers, met my co-host, Matt. We started New Right. We built an audience. I got Nutcranker published by Terror House Press, which is, you know, really a phenomenal operation. Matt Forney is, you know, a, a really impressive guy who, like, is, you know, frankly, really actually very courageous. He's, you know, done uh, done a lot for outsider literature. And, um, yeah, and, you know, Nutcranker, you know, through, you know, many people's efforts, you know, my, my efforts <laughs> has, uh, had taken off and, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very pleased about that. Uh, so yeah. And, and so it's, again, it's special to kind of connect with you. And, uh, this is, you know, in some sense for me where, where it all started. So love to hear it, man. Thank, thanks for that. It's really, really nice to hear that. And it just shows to people out there, you know, who maybe don't have much of an audience or they they have some writing project that they're not sure how to get it published, or they feel like they're, you know, uh, it's too controversial or they're never going to make it work. Uh, you're, you're an uh, excellent case study of someone who really can make it happen, uh, within a couple of years, just through hard work and perseverance. So I'm really glad to have you, have you on the podcast. So let's go to John Kennedy tool. Tell us uh, for people who have never read the novel, let's just start there. Give people a kind of TLDR about the novel, the basic plot, the concept, and just why is this an interesting and special novel to you? So basically, A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole is in many respects a sort of um, a very prescient novel that predicts the kind of the current political situation in America, but it was written in the early 1960s. And the main character, Ignatius J. Riley, is um, he's a kind of... Uh, bumbling, overeducated. He has a master's degree in the humanities. He's, um, enjoys medieval theology. He, um, has, um, a a lot of, uh, kind of esoteric interests, uh, very few, uh, no romantic prospects. He is, um, very much, uh, kind of an incel, a proto incel, proto edgelord type character, and uh, he kind of embarks on a um, picaresque adventure around New Orleans, which is you know where the the author Tool grew up. And he um, kind of arrives at um, a you know an interesting sort of catharsis at the end. But uh, this story, in many ways, I think is especially relevant today because it predicts in some respects the current political moment and um it uh you know serves as kind of a uh, frankly also just a, a great model of excellent comic writing some of the best american comic writing that um you know has ever been uh written so i you know i'm 
to the extent that people have compared my writing to uh, tools, that's a tremendous honor, and I'm uh, very pleased by that. So let's explain a little bit what those commonalities are. You you say that it's it foreshadows the current cultural context in a different podcast. You somewhere said, I believe that um, it's a, a kind of white pill for for some people today. Let's let's try yeah. to explain explain what are those commonalities exactly. What are the lessons kind of embedded in this novel for today? So essentially, Ignatius J. Riley is. Again, he is like a, a neat. He is a. Uh, he, he lives with. His, he has a. You know, he's overeducated. Lives with his mother. Has a um, a great writing project that you know is kind of like never ending and never produces anything. And um, he, you know, kind of bumbles through life, gets into all sorts of um, issues, frankly caused by something probably like similar to autism, <laughs> which is very much, uh, you know, in, in vogue today, talking about that uh, in, in our circle, our sphere. So it, you know, it very much, and it also, in, in this novel, Tool has various characters and uh, themes that kind of oddly, you know, almost kind of eerily predict the current political moment. So there's, um, you know, in addition to Ignatius, who, you know, frankly is like a, a proto-Catholic integralist, sort of monarchist, uh, you know, portly, uh, there's, you know, all sorts of, you know, he's, he's an all too familiar character, shall we say. So, um, he's, you know, so he very much predicts the current moment, but there's other characters in the book that, um, do certainly do so as well. So there's, uh, one such character is, um, Mrs. Levy, who is the wife of a factory owner and she is engaged in she's a kind of housewife with nothing to do and so she gets caught up in all of these social causes one such cause is to insist that her husband continues to employ this uh, elderly woman who wants to retire because she wants to impress upon this woman this elderly woman that she will find her worth through uh through work so uh sort of like uh proto girl boss in the form of an elderly woman who wants to retire and he uh, and is and is like just you know depicted as being quite senile so um this this character of mrs levy that who is you know kind of like i would say a proto awful um affluent white liberal female who um you know essentially will not mind her own business this you know in, you know gets into her husband's business you know, this factory gets into the business of this woman who wants to retire and uh you know essentially you know to make herself feel better um you know uh insists on this program that actually you know makes everyone but her feel worse so that I mean, I, I don't think I need to necessarily draw a through line right. <laughs> today. But my, because- I, let me ask you this though. So uh, totally loud and clear. It's it's obvious and and fascinating how much that rings true for you know certain uh, archetypes that that we see 
in the world today for sure. But it's a comedic novel, of course. And so tell tell the listener a little bit about what is the kind of the the overarching kind of judgment or implication of of John Kennedy tools and in, in making in making fun of these people. Uh, what what is he really trying to say or what is he really trying to show about these people um, that 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 you find compelling or that, that you learn from? So I would say that John Kennedy tools politics are hard to discern because like at certain moments he, you know, Ignatius is, um, he's, you know, essentially portrayed as a Christian humanist. He, you know, certainly wouldn't agree with, um, many of the propositions of the dissident right today believes in the kind of, uh, inherent dignity of all people and even lead something called the crusade, uh, for Moorish dignity, <laughs> which is this uprising at, at a factory, he organizes the African American employees of the factory to rebel <laughs> against the uh, the factory owner. So um, yeah, I mean, there's you know certainly there's a lot going on in the novel, and Tool's own politics are frankly a bit obscure. But what I would say is a white pill is. He, you know, depicts this kind of, you know, crazy, you know, kind of unmoored life of the mind in the character of Ignatius. And uh, ultimately, at the end of the novel, you know, he, uh, rather than like receiving his like sort of comeuppance or, you know, kind of like learning the, the lesson of like, you got to be straight laced, you have to, you know, uh, abandon your, you know, kind of neurotic or, you know, esoteric, you know, ideas. He, um, the, the novel ends on a sort of um, romantic note, actually, where he kind of, uh, he's rescued, he's about to be, you know, the spoiler alert, but, you know, it's a famous novel, so you probably should have yeah, read it's it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he winds up being uh, escaping a um, being sent to the loony bin uh, with a love interest who he also like kind of has a rivalry with and, and hates. But they wind up sort of like riding off into the sunset. He, this kind of Catholic integralist reactionary figure. And she, um, her uh, name is Myrna Minkoff. She's a progressive New York Jewish woman. <laughs> and they, uh, they kind of like ride off into the sunset at the, the end of um, dances. And, you know, uh, frankly, in some respects, you know, we, we have a lot of, uh, from, from what I can gather from my you know, Twitter following, <laughs> my, my ventures in this, you know, world, we have a lot of neats, loveless, you know, incel type needs out there. And, you know, reading a story where some guy at the end who seems very hopeless is, you know, embarks on one, you know, kind of great romantic adventure. That's a white pill. Hey, everybody. This is just a quick interruption to invite you to the new Other Life community. We are now really moving in the direction of a network state. It's pretty crazy. We will give you a fully fledged personal server and a special desktop application from our partners at The Hollywood Company, which will let you and all of the members in the community compute together on the peer-to-peer sensor-proof Urbit network. It's still early, but it's insanely cool. If you're into the other life ethos, like if you're a writer or a software developer or whatever, if you're all about freedom and self-reliance outside of institutions, 
then we want to meet you. The community is now totally free to join. We have other ways now of filtering and sorting people later based on their abilities. It's kind of like the USA of the 1840s. Anyone could get on a ship and go to America, but only some would rise the ranks depending on what they were able to do. To join, just go to otherlife.co forward slash join. That's otherlife.co forward slash join. Yeah, that's wonderful. So you think Tool is suggesting with the the overarching force of the novel that if you're a strange, idiosyncratic, neat, incel writer, philosopher with great ambitions and crazy ideas that you should not get serious and get focused and get commercial and practical and realistic. You should double down on your esoteric idiosyncrasies and, 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 and max them out full throttle. And then you'll get the trick and you'll, you'll ride off into the sunset. That, that's the implication you think? I think that's the implication. Now, I mean that, um, I, I don't mean to jump ahead that did not work out for tool. <laughs> and there, there's a whole, you know, thing like to what extent was tool, did he model Ignatius J. Riley on himself? Probably a little bit, not entirely, but um, I think you know, given and you know, spoiler alert, Tool does take his own life. Um, he, um, I, I'm sure, he wishes that you know his, you know, he he certainly lived a life of uh, commitment to you know writing and writing things that were not necessarily popular and uh idiosyncrasy <laughs> and you know all forms of weirdness and i'm sure in his heart of hearts uh he he wishes that he had rode off into the sunset in you know some more more happy manner than he ultimately did well in a way he did ride off into the sunset because his novel was very famous and successful he just didn't stick around long enough to see it happen right Absolutely. So tell yeah. us more about his life. Tell us about that context where he was trying to get this book published. Just tell, tell us the story as you see it and, and from what you know. What was he facing? How was he perceived? And, 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 and what was the situation there? So it's funny because in many respects, I would say that uh, Tool actually – faced fewer headwinds than many writers today. <laughs> but uh, that being said, you know, because like, you know, he was a, um, there, there's some question as to whether he was actually straight, but he was nominally a straight white male writer at a time when that was not a liability that, you know, was, you know, probably, you know, in some sense helped you perhaps. So, uh, but nevertheless, he, um, he was like many writers. He, you know, he wrote an early novel called the Neon Bible uh, when he was like a teenager, and you know, didn't really um, didn't really write anything creative, as far as we know, as far as we can, you know, uh, you know recover uh, until he graduated college. He served in the military as an English teacher in Puerto Rico. That's an interesting story. Uh, and then he came home and he um, served uh, as a um, professor at some kind of middling, like community college type school where he wrote in his spare time a confederacy of dunces. And so he took Dunces and he knew it was a genius book. He knew it was great. And so he, um, he wrote to uh, Robert Gottlieb, who at the time was the editor-in-chief of Alfred E. Knopf. I've, I'm 
bad at pronouncing. I've never known how to pronounce that. But however you do, uh, he, he was the editor-in-chief of um, you know that publishing house, which is a very prestigious publishing house and still is. Um, and you know, miraculously, or, or perhaps let not like, so in, in today's world, if I, uh, Dan Baltic wrote, uh, to the, the editor in chief of Random House and said, I have this novel, Nutcranker, uh, that would never reach the editor in chief of Random House. That just, it wouldn't happen. But in, um, Tool's case, it did. And within a week, uh, Gottlieb wrote back to him. And they started a great correspondence whereby Gottlieb, you know, said, like, this is a wonderful novel. I like it. And he, you know, he gave him a lot of uh, critiques. And so they went back and forth and back and forth. But eventually it became a sort of uh, toxic thing because Gottlieb, he, um, you know, in, it's, you know, important to note that Dunce's is a great comic novel now, comic novels have never really been in vogue, and they weren't really in vogue at that time, certainly. So what um, Gottlieb was um, impressing upon him, he, he wanted to essentially change the tenor, the tone, and the, um, you know, the, the very nature of a confederacy of dunces into something more resembling like high literary fiction like uh, Flannery O'Connor or, you know, Faulkner or something like that, uh, like real, like, you know, traditional Southern Gothic. And, um, you know, uh, Toole, he didn't exactly resist that because Gottlieb was a very powerful guy. And so it's the equivalent of basically having the, uh, the editor of Simon & Schuster or, you know, um, Random House writing you back and saying, I'm going to work with you to publish this novel. So pretty much anyone in that situation would say, okay, sure, I'm going to do what you say and we're going to get this out there because you're at the top of the game and I'm going to become you know, world famous as soon as this is published. And so that's what he did. He, you know, he followed his advice. He did rewrites and rewrites. But predictably, you can't turn a novel like A Confederacy of Dunces from a, a picaresque comic adventure into As I Lay Dying. It just doesn't work that way. And um, so he kind of like broke himself on the shore of yeah. this, you know, this, you know, problem, this, uh, you know, challenge. And uh, he, he never wrote a version of um, Dunces that, you know, met Gottlieb's approval. And one of the most tragic things in my mind, actually, is that he gave up at that point. He, he never really, he submitted to like one or two other people, but he never really submitted it around. And, um, you know, frankly, it's, a, it's an excellent novel. So I suspect that he would have found a buyer somewhere and it would have, you know, you know reached a claim. And, and the reason why I know that is that it eventually did. So he, um, he very sadly, you know, couldn't, you know, he got discouraged, stopped submitting it. Um, there were a lot of other personal issues in his life. It, he had a very overbearing mother, and um, there, there's some uh, indication that he had a, a uh, fight with her on the day when he drove 
out and he, you know, parked somewhere in, you know, uh, the world, not wilderness, but like somewhere uh, far away. And he, you know, ran a, a hose from the exhaust into his car and um, ended his life. And, you know, very, um, you know, very tragically, he, you know, he did that. That's tragic in and of itself. But um, his, uh, his mother, maybe out of guilt, but she was always a sort of stage mother. She wanted to believe that uh, Tool was a very, and he was, a, you know, a genius, a, you know, a special child. And she, you know, derived probably significant self-esteem from that. So she, in, in the kind of like, this is like a, you know, a crazy movie or story in and of itself, had the wherewithal, this kind of uh, New Orleans uh, old older woman, uh, you know, certainly not plugged into New York literary circles. She tracked down all of his, you know, acquaintances, and she basically annoyed them until one of them, Walker Percy, said, "You know what? This woman, I can't get rid of her. I'm too polite to tell her go away, and I'll just, I'll do it." I'll re, you know, I'll look at her son's novel, and he knew um, Tool as well. He, you know, not very well, but he knew Tool, so he, you know, probably felt bad about what had happened. And this is the mother, and so he, Walker Percy, um, he was, he, he wrote, and you know, uh, expressed this, and you know, in, in his writing, that he was hoping that. A confederacy of dunces would be terrible. So he could, you know, open it up, read a couple of pages, and basically throw it in the trash and say, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. This isn't a good novel. But uh, he was, you know, he in his writing, he said he was crushed because he opened it and he realized this is amazing. This is an, a wonderful novel and this needs to be published. So it's kind of like, you know, he realizes the true kind of tragedy of what had happened to John Kennedy Toll, and he realizes that he himself, I suppose, as a, a fellow man of letters, a friend of Toll's, someone who wants to assuage the guilt of this, you know, stage mom, uh, he, he took it upon himself to, to make sure that Confederacy of Dunces got published. And Walker Percy at the time was a famous novelist. He had the, the juice and the power to do this. He did it, and it was a hit. It, uh, it you know, eventually, I believe, won the Pulitzer Prize. It is uh, current. So this is like crucially, he Tool killed himself in I believe '69. It didn't come out until like '80 or '81. So there's a ten-year gap there, uh, but it it did and. It um, you know won a lot of laurels. It um, is if you kind of like consult you know any sort of like top one hundred of the twentieth century, it usually makes its way on the list. Certainly in connection with Southern literature. Certainly in connection with comic and satire. So um, yeah, this is like a long, long way of saying that uh, the there. There was a real white pill at the end, which is that thanks to his dogged and crazy mother and Walker Percy, who I guess sense of like, you know, 
like noblesse oblige or something. He couldn't, you know, he, he had to champion it. It, um, you know, he Tool posthumously won the laurels that he, you know, should have won in his lifetime. Right. Yeah, that's great. I think there are at least two things to pause and reflect on in that story. One is that it's interesting what you said, how he had this correspondence with Gottlieb and almost got Gottlieb's approval and endorsement of the manuscript, but was never really able to win over Gottlieb. And then he didn't really try that hard to shop it around elsewhere. That's a major part of the story here, here, in my opinion. Like absolutely. He didn't yeah. even really he didn't even really max out his possibilities. And and that's I think that's a very unfortunate kind of hang up. I think you see with some people, but some people are so kind of burdened by their own confidence and their own greatness. Like they know they have something great and they know that it's deserving and they know that this this is at least as good as other stuff being published. And so they're adamant about getting it published. But when they confront people who don't believe in it or they, 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 they encounter any resistance at all, it becomes, for a certain type of person, it can become just so paralyzing and so discouraging. And sometimes what someone will do is like, it's like if they can't get the one person they're talking to to endorse it and approve it and, and to sign off on it, then it's like they feel like they've lost everything. It's doomed and it's over. It's like th there's a certain kind of literary ambitious personality that just I think like puts way too much pressure on themselves to to win in a very particular context in a very particular time and place. Or if they don't, then it's like woe is me. I'm literally dead and over, and I have to kill myself now. And I'm, I don't. I'm not making light or being glib, but it's like that is a kind of. Um, that is the mistake here. That's like one of the lessons to learn, I think, in, in this story is like he was young. Absolutely. He killed himself when he was 31. It's like had he just gone a little bit slower, had a little bit more patience, and first of all, shopped it around to other people, not just Gottlieb, uh, he, he could have at least shopped it around to all the other possible takers out there before getting overly distraught. But even if all of them said no, even if all the publishers at that time said no, he could still take some solace in knowing he's relatively young. He can take another stab at it. Fashions might change. New people might change. New people might, you know, come, come across him. Uh, you really never know in this game, like when you're going to catch a break. And if you keep trying and you have real quality, you're almost destined to rise to the top. So long as you keep trying and you have real quality. So I think that that that's and and that's what his life actually shows, right? It's like it's it's very sad that um, he would get the recognition he he aimed for and knew that he deserved, but he wasn't even around to see it. So I guess that's the second lesson: is no matter what happens, just stay in the game and stick around as long as possible. Because if you're doing real work with real quality, if you just keep putting shots up, you're eventually gonna live to see something that that you can be proud of, and, and your work is gonna get out and find its level. I feel like those are kind of the two the two lessons so far and the way you tell the story is like, first of all, max out all your options before you get distraught, but B, even if you get distraught, relax and just keep going and things will eventually find their level. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, frankly, you need to be both, um, tool, you need to be the writer, but you, you also need to be his mother. <laughs> you need to be the the woman who or the man who knocks on every door and doesn't give up and sometimes it's hard to do that you know i'm sure in some respects it was easier for her to do that on behalf of her dead son 
because, you know, she felt that, you know, burning obligation. But uh, you, you got to find a way to, you know, do that for yourself and believe like, you know, well, okay, I wrote something, it's good, but I have this crazy need to evangelize myself to everyone that, you know, like, look, as though you are the, you know, lost child of yourself, right. almost. Right. So this is a good segue to, t- to talk a little bit more about how you built your writing project and how you kind of launched your career with your first novel, Nutcranker. When I first met you a couple of years ago, when we first connected, uh, if I recall correctly, you know, you were really just kind of starting out and de- you had just decided really, you know, you had this manuscript that you had partially written and you knew you wanted to, to get it published or you wanted to move forward on it in some way. And you were just, you know, connecting with people like me and the other life community and other pl- people, I'm sure as well. And you were just kind of like at that stage a couple of years ago, you were just trying to figure out the lay of the land, trying to figure out how to take this manuscript you had that you believed in and, and, and what to do with it and, and, and how to build up a, a career for, for yourself as an independent writer. And fast forward, I think it's been about two years there or thereabouts. Um, you now have a podcast with a modest but, but passionate audience um, called The New Write. You have successfully published that manuscript that you had been working on uh, when we first met. And, you know, you, you have, um, a very promising, um, you know, energetic beginning of an independent literary career, but you've done it very differently than most people, right? You know, terror house is a very different kind of press. It's, it's specializing in kind of independent, um, sort of dissident literature and, uh, the themes I would say that you're working in with your podcast and with your Substack and everything are also, you know, uh, very different than, you know, your average, like whatever, uh, New York times, uh, book review, uh, you know, appearance or, or whatever. Right. So there's so many people in my audience who kind of fit that mold. There's a lot of people who, who listen to this podcast and follow my work who have some kind of manuscript of their own, whether it's literary fiction or nonfiction or what have you. And they're just basically, they know they have real work. They know they have something to say. They know they have what it takes to, to, to build something significant, but, but people are so, unsure about how to proceed in this kind of new cultural economy. It's very confusing. There's many different players, many different pockets and, and, and subcultures and people get paralyzed. And they're just not knowing, you know, you know, should I, should I independently publish this by myself, self-publishing on Amazon? Should I go to a small press? Should I start building an audience uh, by writing an email newsletter? Should I do a podcast? There's all these questions. And I don't want to get into all the weeds of all of those questions. That's not my point. But my point is, this is the kind of confusion that goes through people's minds and uh, people, people don't know exactly how to proceed. So take us back to, to when you kind of first, you know, started pursuing your project and building up your career. Um, how did you think about these questions? What were the decisions that you made? And just to kind of take us from the beginning, because I think, you know, um, you are right now in a place doing quite well, where a lot of people listening to this would love to be in one year or two years. Absolutely. So, when I, well, I mean, the I'll, I'll just say first, when COVID first hit, and in my particular industry, I'm a lawyer, uh, but in my sector, things slowed down, you know, considerably. So I, I had a lot of time to, to, you know, write. And so I, I wrote Nutcranker during that period of time. And that was idyllic you know like i wasn't making much money that was not good but um what was good was i was writing about three hours a day 
going on long walks and uh, you know coming home, working out, and making good dinners and getting excited to you know and you know frankly. I don't even think I had much of a love life during this period of time, but that, that was fine. I was just like really extremely happy just doing my writing. And, and to be clear, you, you had, you had no um, opportunities really. It was just, you were going to do the work by yourself, make a good manuscript and then figure out what to do with it. You didn't, you didn't already have contacts. You didn't already have any game plan. I mean, I, I knew people in mainstream publishing, but I, I certainly had no offers or real like expectations that it would work. I just knew that like, you know, I have this time, yeah, I have the time to write and you know, that that's crucial to actually just have the time. And so I did that and, you know, it was, you know, frankly, it was, it was beautiful. It was some of the, some of the best times in my adult life were during COVID writing this novel and going on long walks and, you know, you know, whatever. And, um, but you know, that's, that's the beautiful part. <laughs> that's the part where you write the novel and it's wonderful. And you're kind of like in communion with, and so like, I did have a few readers. I did have a few people who I could, you know, bounce the, the manuscript off. And, you know, so like, you know, very interestingly, um, because it's, I mean, while I would hesitate to call Nutcranker a kind of, you know, necessarily reactionary novel or a, even, even a sexist novel, um, it's, you know, certainly more, um, not in tune with the current, uh, political climate, so to say. So, uh, one of my early readers was, uh, one of my law school friends who is, is not a reader. He's a college basketball, former college basketball player. And so he was, you know, he was one of my early readers because I know, I knew like, well, he'll like this probably. And, and he loved it. And so that was just like really encouraging that this guy who doesn't really read books was reading it. And he's just, you know, it's, you know, told me it's the, one of the best books he's ever read. And so I figured, well, if I could reach this guy and he thinks it's the best book he's, one of the best books he's ever read, then, um, you know, I really must have something going on. So that encouraged me. Um, what did discourage me was once I had finished, I started shopping it around in the industry to literary agents. And there's a whole thing. You, you have to create, uh, you know, what are called query letters where you explain, you know, what your, you know, novel is and the different novels that it, you know, compares to. And you try to get an agent and, you know, not surprisingly, a, uh, a story about a sort of like, you know, incel edgelord was uh, at, at this time in 2020 or so was not a very popular sell, even if there were like probably, you know, agents and, you know, editors who were interested. I, I don't think they wanted to, you know, have the, you know, it's just like a, a politically uh, hot potato. Sure. So, course. yeah, they didn't want that. So I struck out, struck out completely. And so that, that was very discouraging. But, you know, I remembered that, okay, this guy, this college basketball player loves it. And he's like the type of guy I'm trying to reach, kind of. So there's something going on here. And I'm, you know, and I'm not done. 
So I, you know, started kind of like looking around and I was on Twitter a little bit. I was like kind of scoping more of a lurker account. And, um, you know, to my great benefit, I discovered uh, Other Life, which at the time was called Indie Thinkers. And uh, I, you know, joined the community. I described my project and I got a lot of interest from, you know, the people on the, the forum. And that was great. And, um, so that, that really encouraged me and the most meaningful thing of all that I got from it was, uh, my, uh, future co-host on new, right. Uh, I, you know, met him through this post that I made and we, you know, discussed publishing and, you know, the state of the industry and, and all of this. And, you know, eventually in a couple of months, I proposed to Matt, Matt Pegas that, uh, we should start new, right. And, uh, you know, after a little back and forth, we decided that we, we would do it. And, um, you know, that was the whole thing, too. That was, you know, I, I had already written Nutcranker. But you had not gotten it published. At that point, you had not gotten it published. And you started the podcast in this kind of interim period where you were unable to get it published. Exactly. Yeah, okay. I knew it was in the wings. I had Nutcranker. And, you know, frankly, even at the time, I kind of sussed out that, like, look, if I have a podcast that builds an audience, it's going to be a lot easier to get this book out there. At least I'll have people who I can, you know, suggest, you know, they, they should read it. And, um, you know, Matt and I, I think, you know, we did a very good job and we're still doing a good job. We built an audience. We built a profile in, you know, this corner of the Internet. And, um, you know, as a result, we uh, – so this this is something that I remember – I think I forget what pod it was. It may may have even been your one of your pod, but uh, he said something to the effect of, um, "If you want to be successful as a writer, first be successful as something else." Who said that? And I think that was Delicious Tacos. Okay, he was never on this podcast, so okay. Uh, well, he was. He, I, I think he said it, and I'm pretty sure he said it on some podcast. Got it. And, and, uh, and but how did you I think interpret that? Very, what was that? How did you interpret that in your context? So I, in that context, I realized that if I could make New Right a – and you know, frankly, it's something I enjoy doing. I enjoy talking about this stuff. I enjoy talking about cultural criticism from a, you know, an outsider uh, and indeed um, right-wing perspective – it, um, it's very, um, you know, something I, I love doing. So I love doing the pod and it's, you know, it, it energizes me. And did, but, did the podcast play an important role in getting your book published or, cause I, I have a sense that you probably could have just gone to terror house even without a podcast and maybe they would have been interested or you think the podcast well, was instrumental. I mean, terror house probably like I, you know, I had already, you know, met Matt Matt Forney, not Matt Pegas, Matt Forney, the editor of Terror House. And he had my manuscript for, you know, a while. He eventually decided he would publish it. But um, I think the actual, the success of Nutcranker largely is because of the Twitter audience that I built as a result of, you know, not just, you know, constantly tweeting, which I do, but also, um, the, the podcast and the podcast kind of got me into a community of more, 
uh, high profile, you know, posters, if you will, or, you know, public intellectuals, Twitter and whatever you want to call them. And, um, you know, it's, it is true that it's kind of, it's the friends you make. And if you can, you know, find people who, you know, you can have a certain entree, you know, in, uh, into, um, they, you know, they can then become champions of your work. And so and did you, so, did you start uh, building the podcast and taking Twitter seriously at the same time, or did you do one before the other? I definitely built the podcast and was taking that seriously before Twitter. Twitter was kind of just like I was using Twitter to kind of like promote the pod and I was like using it from time to time. But it was I mean, Twitter actually has been and I know many people call it the hell site. They, they hate it. But it's been one of the most pleasant surprises in uh, my the past few years because I love it. I'm like, you know, I'm suddenly like thinking, you know, it kind of like energizes. I, I have a, you know, the way I write, I kind of like write by intuition. I think of kind of like pithy phrases or whatever, and it's, it's perfectly suited to Twitter. So I, you know, I found that like I'm promoting the pod on Twitter and at the same time, I just really got into tweeting and, you know, I kind of, that helped me build my audience. I, you know, I still don't have a very big one. I'm approaching 5,000 and that's, you know, you know certainly I'm not a, a duke of Twitter yet, but, uh, you know, maybe in due time, hopefully in due time. And, uh, but, you know, crucially that, that 5,000, that, you know, that contains a pretty, you know, large number of people who have bought copies of Nutcranker. Right. And yeah, when I, so when I announced, you know, that, you know, Nutcranker is coming out, I, uh, you know, I immediately had people buying it and I immediately had people. So, and so, you know, in terms of promoting, uh, it, you know, it, it depends like you, some people, depending on what you, you've written or, you know, the, you know, your project, it might not make sense to kind of have like a, kind of real guerrilla marketing campaign on Twitter. But, um, yeah, you know, Nutcranker just like lends it's like by the title itself lends itself to all sorts of, you know, different innuendos and different, you know, what have you I've, and I've also kind of like been on Twitter long enough that I've become a character. Like I, you know, I talk about my junior associate at work and how I torment him. And it's this sort of like, um, you know, it's like Dan Baltic has himself become a character. So as a result, I, you know, kind of, um, it gives me the, the juice, the, the whatever to, um, really kind of get creative in selling that cranker and kind of like create these like, you know, kind of long form tweets where it's just like, like I, I had one, which was about like, um, how like, you, you know, you're in, in Top Gun, you know, Academy or whatever, and you're about to crash and you pull the, uh, the ejection cord and a, a copy of Nutcranker flies out at you and hits you in the face and you go like, damn Baltic, I can't believe you got me again before you crash and stuff like that. Yeah. There's a lot here to, uh, to dissect and reflect on because I mean, what I like about your story is that, you know, for people, anyone who listens to this podcast for a while knows that 
I don't really fuck with super famous people that much. Like I just can't pretend to be bothered with like, I just can't pretend that I'm actually interested in someone just because they're famous. So I, that is like one way to grow a podcast, but it's never worked for me because I, I just cannot feign interest in people. And I actually find much more compelling and more interesting people who are not massive people who are, who are still relatively small, but they figure things out just well enough to crack the code a little bit and to get just enough traction, just enough, you know, of an audience and fan base that they're able to sustainably and effectively launch high quality intellectual and creative projects that they believe in and people will buy them and people will say good things about them and people will write reviews. And, you know, that's going from nothing to what you have is to, in my mind, the most interesting transition that is of most value to other people because it's like, it's accessible, right? It's not only is it accessible, it's like, you know, anyone with a decent IQ and genuine creativity and willing to put in the hard work can take a, can take a very, you know, uh, reasonable stab at what you've done in, in the past year or two. Uh, but the other thing also that I like about your story is that, you know, a lot of people look at Twitter or they look at YouTube or they look at podcasting, any of these, any of these mediums and platforms that they, and they, and they, people generally only see the biggest names, the people who kind of rise to fame super fast, right? It's like all of a sudden one day it was like Lex Friedman is on everyone's screen and has like a million views per video. And everyone's like, how the, where the, yeah. fuck, did this, where the fuck did this guy come from? And he has like a million views all of a sudden, or like Andrew Huberman or on Twitter, there's like, you know, the think boys on Twitter where it's like, there are accounts on Twitter that literally went from like zero followers to a million followers in like one year because they just get super, super formulaic. And then they just churn like, like an industrial factory on like the, the proven formulas. So you can, you know, there are many ways to grow a massive audience in, you know, a couple years or relatively quickly if you're super formulaic and, and you just play the algorithm ruthlessly. I'm always most interested in people who are extremely and absolutely independent. They're not playing any well-known formula. They're just, you know, trying to put out the most interesting, high quality stuff in a creative, unique voice that is true to them. And they're able to just go from zero followers to 5,000. And their podcast is not, you know, top 10 in the iTunes charts, but there's like, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand people who really fucking love it and listen all the time and write replies and tell their friends about it. Right. So, um, that's, that's like how I want people to think about this, you know, and, and, um, that, that's like why I think this is actually more interesting than the hyper successful, you know, like superstar case studies or whatever. Um, so tell us a little bit about like inflection points or things that you discovered that like really unlock things, because I noticed for, I think I noticed for you, I had never seen you on Twitter at all. And then, um, I think there was like just a moment like a few months ago, maybe six months ago, maybe eight months ago. I don't know exactly when, but I have an, I have an intuition or an impression that you kind of like recently just sort of cracked the code with Twitter a little bit. Like you really kind of found, found your stride because now every now and then, like, I feel like once a month or something, I see you have a kind of viral tweet and, um, and I feel like you've kind of unlocked Twitter. So talk to me about Twitter as a, as a literary novelist and as a creative comedic, um, artist. Um, have, what have you learned about, how to do that about what works have you changed like your practices or just tell tell us anything you've learned about unlocking that absolutely so twitter i mean if you're a writer you should be on twitter yep i would say it's um i mean not all writers are going to be great at twitter if you are a like kind of long form F, F scott fitzgerald type writer maybe twitter isn't your um, meta 
but um, I, you know, it it depends. Like if you like, for instance, my own writing. I, you know, I've always been very good at voice, dialogue. I've always been a, a more kind of like intuitive thinker. These like, you know, kind of insights and lines and words just kind of come to me. So Twitter, it, you know, once I got the hang of it, it felt utterly natural. And so now like I do even I worry almost as I go throughout the day that I've programmed my brain to think in aphorisms for Twitter, which, uh, you know, maybe I, I don't know, maybe there's long term effects to that. But um, in, in the short term, I'm enjoying myself. And it's, um, you know, if, if you can kind of think in short, pithy sound bites that kind of are revealing um, that, you know, and, you know, hopefully funny or, you know, whatever, um, that, that will serve you very well in building an audience. And uh, I'll, I'll give a little shout out to a, a Twitter friend, uh, Bad Billy Pratt. He, um, he, uh, he, he wrote a book with Terror House called Welcome to Hell or uh, Kill to Party. Um, that's oh no, I'm sorry. The Kill to Party is his handle. The book is Welcome to Hell. But uh, he described on Twitter what um, kind of like different tiers of like how you can get popular. And like one is to have like a niche that you kind of like nail. And you just, you're the car guy. You're the kind of like, you know, gun guy or the Bitcoin guy. Obviously, there's many of those guys around. But you can like quickly build a big audience by doing that. You can also build a, a big audience uh, by doing kind of like uh, commentary and like threads on things and kind of like build up like you're the guy on this issue or that issue. And the hardest one, he said, is to be you know, known for being yourself. And people kind of like will check out the account because they want to know what bad Billy Pratt is doing. Uh, and you know, I, I think what, you know, I've, or what delicious tacos is doing or saying, and you know, what I, I think and what I hope is that I've created a, you know, an account where people want to, you know, find out what does Dan Baltic think about this or, or what is, what is Dan Baltic even, you know, doing today? Let's, let's check in. Was there, and, was there, was there a day where you kind of realized like, oh, wow, this Twitter thing is really serious and powerful and important if you're a writer. And you decided like one day, I need to take this seriously and I'm going to treat it like a job almost, or has it never been kind like that? Of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like I probably in um, maybe like October or November of 2021 uh, or early 2022, I had some of my first vi more viral tweets, like, you know, 5,000, 10,000 likes. I mean, obviously this isn't viral and like super viral, but you know, it gets out there. And I realized like, wow, okay, I write something that, you know, I just thought of and suddenly I gain three or 400 followers. And I gained some, and some of them are, you know, influential people. And um, yeah, it just, it kind of clicked to me that like, this is a way, like the same way if you're um, a lawyer and you, you're starting your own practice and you, you have your own clients and it just like, it suddenly clicks 
oh, wait a minute, when I'm charging my clients directly, I make a lot more money than if I'm you know, working for a firm and I make more money for less work. That, it's that type of you know, situation where you just kind of realize, wait a minute, if I can you know, re- reliably produce these like uh, bangers, I'll continue to gain followers. And yeah, it is kind of just will- like, it's like the highest return on investment for a, a, a relatively small unit of like textual output, really. Like, like you can hate on Twitter all you want and I, there are many things to dislike about it and there are many risks psychologically. Like it, it, can, it can definitely uh, poison your brain in certain ways if you're not careful, but the, the, the average ROI that you can get out of a very, very small amount of, of work and, and textual, you know, concentration, concentration is sort of like absurdly good that I say the same thing that you said at the beginning of this part of the conversation. Like, I also think say, say all the bad things about it you want, but if you're a writer and you're seriously trying to, you know, take your life seriously as a writer, it's, it's sort of like, you can't not make the most of it. It's just too good. It's too good. It's too powerful, really. If you're if you traffic in words, this this platform is just kind of like too good, despite all of its warts. But there was something you said earlier that I wanted to uh, return to, which I think is really important. And just in case people missed it, I wanted to pause on it. So you had you were describing when you shared your manuscript with your friend who is a former NBA player and how he really liked it. I think this is really important. And this is something a lot of people I think can easily overlook or, or forget about what you, what you noticed or what you believed that is not as common a belief as you might think is that you said to yourself, I'm going to, I'm going to see if another human being actually wants to read this thing and genuinely (laughs) enjoys reading this thing. No, really, this is like, this actually goes over a lot of people's heads. A lot of people think that kind of literature and writing is this kind of, I think what a lot of people think is it's just a matter of you have to win the approval of powerful people basically. And if you can, if you can get like the tastemakers to think that it's good or to say that it's good, or you can get the the publishers to sign off on it. A lot of people intrinsically just naturally think that writing is this game of producing an artifact to get some special people to approve of it. But, but, it, but it's actually not that. There's a much more general, universal kind of like human reality to it all, which is like, can you write something that any person or at least some people out there, normal people who have no power, but are just readers, actual people who are thinking and want it, want it, wanting to experience beauty and comedy and, and, and insight into the truth. Can you just find one person out there, anyone out there who enjoys this and wants to read more of it voluntarily? And I love that you intuited this. So many writers don't intuit this. So many pe- writers don't even want to be bothered. They feel like having their friend read it is like a waste of time because their friend doesn't have power. But you realized, no, like this one person really genuinely likes it. That's all the confidence I need to know that this is going to succeed somehow. And I love that because not a lot of people realize that or think about that. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, crucially, I think writers, you need to think about who are the readers you want. Like the readers I want are not necessarily like the the big, you know, uh, literary Twitter guys who are like, you know, tweeting about like, you know, this is my insight into, um, you know, Lacan or something like that. It's um, more, you know, I, I want people who want to read my writing who will like enjoy it the most so 
I knew that like, you know, this guy, this, you know, former college basketball player, he will, um, you know, he's, you know, he's maybe the little, like he doesn't read very often at all. So <laughs> maybe he's not, you know, super in the camp of the people who would, you know, read my writing, but he's certainly closer to it than, you know, people who are kind of swept up in the mainstream publishing industry and kind of uh, the pretensions therein. And But, I mean, if you are writing for that, those people, you should absolutely make sure that they want to read your stuff because those are the people you're writing for. And, um, I mean, it is not to say that I don't consider Nutcranker literary fiction. I do. This is not to say I don't consider my you know readers uh, not sophisticated. I do. It's uh, it's just that like I found the readers who um, who really you know enjoy my writing, who you know who love it, and that's yeah. like that's what you need to find. I just love that you started with that tangible interpersonal proof that another human being out in the world who maybe doesn't have power, but, but it, but has, he also has no reason to lie to me. You know, this is, this is just a person who read my book and genuinely went out of his way to say that he enjoyed it when he had, he had nothing to gain from that. Um, and even though he has no power, he's a person who genuinely likes it. And, and you took that as like, that's all the proof I need that I'm onto something. This is good. This is worth fighting for. This is this. I'm going to find this at home. And this is all the proof I need that it's good. I, I just love that. And I want to pause on that for people listening because I, a lot of people, a surprising number of aspiring writers kind of skip that stage. Um, and that's why like in the other life community, we're increasingly kind of all about like writing for each other and writing for ourselves, essentially. Like we, I'm now of the opinion that if you just have a small community of intelligent, thoughtful people, you can almost forget about building an audience and just focus on doing good work that uh, the people in your group genuinely like and tell you is cool. And like, if you can just do that first and you don't even have to necessarily worry about, uh, you know, winning a publisher or building a massive audience, you can do all that stuff later. But if you can just write something that a few people around you genuinely like, and maybe even love, then it's like you've 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 won 99% of the battle then it's a matter of you know getting it out to the world but at least you've done the work and um you you've done it in a in a genuinely human uh, authentic way um and so yeah i, I just wanted I, I i love that part of your story and i i i, I was afraid oh, that it might have gone over people's heads if we we didn't pause on it um let's talk a little bit about you know the future of publishing and and how you're thinking about how you're thinking about the future. Um, uh, a friend of mine, Paul Millard, who wrote he writes nonfiction and he wrote a nonfiction book called The Pathless Path. He independently published it totally by himself, and it's done really well. It's just through totally organic word of mouth, people have just enjoyed it and they've told their friends about it, and it's just kind of spiraled out of control. And you know he's published his results on that. He's earned something like. $130,000 in profit in like the first year or, or oh, less, wow. it was less than two, less than two years, maybe, um, maybe a year around their ballpark. But, uh, he was approached, he was approached by, uh, Penguin, uh, who wanted to buy the book and they also wanted to sign him for his second book. And for those two combined, Penguin offered him $200,000 contract and he said, no, he declined it. And I just think that's so badass. And it's such an interesting, compelling kind of indication of, of where the culture is going. So I'm curious in your perspective, you just published, uh, well, not just published, but recently published a book with a, with a small press. So it wasn't self-published, um, but it was a small press. 
Um, how do you think about the ideal path for you moving forward and for independent kind of dissident writers such as yourself moving forward? Do you still aspire to get that New York book deal? Have you completely set that aside and you don't even think about that anymore? Do you think about building an independent publish a truly, you know, personal independent operation where you get all of the royalties to yourself and you, and you do the publishing and the layout and stuff by yourself. How do you think about this? I'm just curious, like what, what is your ideal kind of path moving forward and, and what are your goals? Cause it will say a lot about kind of the lay of the land for independent writers. So that's a very interesting question because it, it hits on like a, a lot of different, you know, issues and topics you know, close to me, but, you know, close to the industry as well. And I would say that the most important thing for an artist, for a writer, is the ability to make, continue to make good art. And I, you know, it certainly a $200,000 advance would be very attractive because, it would enable me to really focus on my writing and I could stop you know, working so much doing other stuff and I could focus on the writing. But the issue then becomes um, the, the mainstream, as much as people want to talk about the any so-called vibe shift, uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident that uh, Nutcranker would not uh, debut in its unaltered form in the, the mainstream publishing industry today, and uh, certainly nor would any sequel. So I think the ideal, and um, Curtis Yarvin set this forth in a pod, I forget exactly which one, but uh, he was talking about like what makes a um, a good artist, or, or what what is the kind of like the the path and the, and the qualities of you know an artist to succeed. And you like you kind of need you need material support. You need um, to be good to have good writing, and you need to um, be good at politics to to get your writing across. And the thing is, like a kind of, uh, if you you are to accept a a big advance from a big publisher, you um, you're going to compromise your ability to write because they're going to, you know, they're going to, you know, it depends on what type of writing you're doing. If you're doing writing where this is not an issue, then by all means, go ahead. You know, a lot of kind of, you know, nonfiction probably this, you know, wouldn't be implicated. Uh, it, it depends, but I know certainly the type of writing I'm doing, um, I need the freedom to actually write it. So I think I too would turn that down and what, but then it becomes like, well, okay, what, what are you going to do? How are you going to get this writing out there? Um, frankly, I, you know, I love Terror House. They did an amazing job with my novel. Um, I think, you know, if you're a first time author and you don't have much of an audience, it really helps to come out from an established publisher. Uh, but once you do have an audience, you know, frankly, self publishing is, it's a pretty good option because you control everything then. And from crucially, you also control how much, you know, money you get. Is that what you think <laughs> so, you'll do for your next novel? I think so. Yeah. I mean, like I, I, you know, I'm working on a sequel to Nutcranker. I, you know, I'm certainly not closed off to any offers, 
happy to talk to anyone. But my plan, you know, to the extent I've sketched it out is I think I probably will publish independently in the, uh, the delicious tacos model, the BAP model, and just, you know, commission a cover, get it done myself, recover my investment, and then just kind of, you know, the hopefully the novel has a long life. I, I have the sense that Nutcrinker certainly will. And um, it continues to generate, you know, not just revenue for me, but uh, readers. Because, you know, frankly, if I went the traditional publishing route, I don't know if my audience, my readership would stick with me. Because, you know, the novel that I publish will be, you know, significantly... Uh, you know, to uh, use an over an overused word in this side of the internet, uh, cucked to some degree. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, look. I think I could see. You, I think you're off to a great start, and I could see you. It seems like you're in a position where if you just keep growing the podcast, keep growing on Twitter, and keep producing novels that people love to read, you could e- someone like you could easily in five years from now, you could easily, you know. Uh, be doing really well, you know, like you could surprise a lot of people by how, you know, how big you can get um, if you just stay working and stay focused and ignore all the bullshit. And you just kind of like through the time and energy you save, not wasting it on like New York City book politics and, you know, all the emailing and the meetings and all, all of that nonsense and the cognitive overhead of all of it, all the time and energy you save on not doing that stuff it's pretty tremendous how much, how much work one can get done, uh, just by doing it oneself. And it seems like you're in a great position to just keep pretty much growing what you already have. So, um, that's awesome. Absolutely. Um, Uh, one, uh, other item I wanted to hit upon is I found, because I, I do have a demanding job that the kind of the best way to, um, titrate between your work and your creative pursuits is, um, you have to find a way to carve out a niche or you know a career in your industry that allows you greater flexibility so in in some sense if you're an artist think of yourself you're you're on the, the mom track <laughs> you uh you want to have more time you want to have time to like do your stuff so in an odd way you know i'm um i'm somewhat independent at this moment have my own my own firm my own shop and um that allows me to kind of like take on as much work as i want and if i you know um you know want less work i can titrate that down and it you know it frankly when you are i mean it varies by industry but when you are more of an owner you um you know you work less I'm not, you, you do a lot of other stressful work. You, as you know, Justin, <laughs> you do a lot of, uh, you know, kind of behind the scenes work, which is, you know, very frustrating, but, uh, you, uh, in terms of like the actual profits, um, it's not mediated through anyone else. It's not like, you know, your, you know, your job keeps, your company keeps, you know, most of the money you you make for them and they give you a small bit. You, you keep it all. And that can, and depending on your industry, be pretty powerful in terms of creating a uh, kind of like, I work X amount of hours and make X amount of money. It certainly is when you're a lawyer and you're, you know, billing for like, you know, $400 an hour. 
So, right, totally. No, that that's a good word word of wisdom for sure. Dan, this has been really fun. The novel we've been talking about throughout has been called it's called Nutcracker. That's Dank's novel. Uh, it's uh, spelled a little funny. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, there's no e in the Nutcracker part, so uh, you can find that on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes for people to check that out. Nutcracker. It's called uh, the podcast is called New Right. Uh, with Matt, and I, I believe the newest addition to your to your stack of media properties is uh, is you have a sub stack now. So I'll put links to all of these things in the show notes. People can uh, reach out to you, Dan, if they want to. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom here for independent writers, but also just for you know people who are kind of interested in John Kennedy Tool and the the lessons from a Confederacy of Dunces. So I think this was uh, fascinating. And Dan, I just want to you know congratulate you on on your early success. You know, I know you're just at the beginning of of your career, and I think you have. Uh, much more ahead of you. But like I said before, I think you're just an excellent example of someone going from zero to something, you know, no audience whatsoever, just a manuscript or a half written, a half baked idea and a half written manuscript and a desire to build something and to, and to succeed as a writer uh, with no followers. You went from that to, you know, a very decent, um, little audience and brand and uh, a, a published a published novel that has uh, some real passionate uh, fans of it. So that's the hardest part. Going from zero to that is by far the hardest part. And there's so many people in my orbit who are trying to figure this out for themselves right now, really smart people who absolutely have what it takes. Uh, but it's just confusing. It can be discouraging. And I love that there are people out there like you who can come on this podcast and just kind of like, open up the hood, share about it and talk about, talk about, you know, and show how it really is possible. And it's, it's available. Uh, it's not rocket science. It really just requires some talent, some, some perseverance and obviously a lot of hard work and, and confidence in yourself. But there were inter interesting le lessons here about, you know, like your friend, the basketball player and how you took that very seriously and the way you kind of stuck with it and the way you carved out time to actually do the manuscript and enjoy yourself even before there was any sign of, of success or you didn't even know where it was going to go. You just did the work. You enjoyed it. Uh, you tried to write for someone that you knew who, uh, you know, if you could make them really enjoy it, then you would probably be onto something there. So there are a lot of good little lessons there that I think people should uh, really think about and, and try to adopt in their own you know, project as they try to go from no audience to just enough of an audience to, to get off to a good start. So thanks for sharing. Uh, it's, it's a great story. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what you do with it all in the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Justin. Thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. This is fun.